Ezekiel chapter 7, verses 1 through 27. Ezekiel 7, I'm going to read the whole chapter to you, and we're hopefully going to get through the whole thing tonight. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, and you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations, and my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster. Behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you. O inhabitant of the land, the time has come, the day is near, a day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all your abominations and my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Behold the day, behold it comes. Your doom has come, the rod has blossomed, pride has budded, violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth, neither shall there be preeminence among them. The time has come, the day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon all their multitude. For the seller shall not return to what he has sold while they live. For the vision concerns all their multitude, it shall not turn back, and because of his iniquity, none can maintain his life. They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle. For my wrath is upon all their multitude, the sword is without, pestilence and famine are within. He who is in the field dies by the sword, and him who is in the city famine and pestilence devour. And if any survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them moaning each one over his iniquity. All hands are feeble and all knees turn to water. They put on sackcloth and horror covers them. Shame is on all faces and baldness on all their heads. They cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. His beautiful ornament they used for pride and they made their abominable images and their detestable things of it. Therefore I will make it an unclean thing to them. I will give it into the hands of the foreigners for prey, and to the wicked of the earth for spoil, and they shall profane it. I will turn my face from, from them, and they shall profane my treasured place. Robbers shall enter and profane it. Forge a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong, and their holy places shall be profaned. When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster comes upon disaster, rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from the prophet while the law perishes from the priest and the counsel from the elders. The king mourns, the priest is wrapped in despair, and the hands of the people are of the land are parallels, paralyzed by terror. According to their way, I will do to them, and according to their judgments, I will judge them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Yeah, wow. But if you've been in this study for any length of time, you realize this isn't the first time we've heard about the coming judgment, is it? 
It's actually, they've been warning him and warning him for quite a few years, actually. Isaiah's been prophesying when the two kingdoms were together still. Jeremiah has been prophesying. And Ezekiel now, after the captivity, the second wave of captivity into Babylon, he is now become called by God to be a prophet to the people as well. And so we need to ask a question tonight as we get into our study. Why does God warn so many times, especially since we saw the last time we were together, that he will do everything he said he would do? If he's already said it, there's an end, the end has come, it's time. Why does he keep warning over and over and over? I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> uh, very good. It's because of his mercy, folks. I want to take some time tonight before we get into chapter 7 and really break it down. I want to hopefully be used of the Lord tonight to change your mindset toward the continual judgments and warnings of God. All right. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Well, somebody quoted that one already, but I want you to see it. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at verses 9 and 10. Peter's been talking about the fact that there's a judgment of God coming on the whole world. And just like the earth, the earth at the beginning was reserved for water in the flood, so now the earth that we know is reserved for fire. In verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you see that? Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Why have we been hearing about this coming of the Lord for so many years and the coming judgment on the whole world and the book of Revelation lays it out specifically how it's all going to play out? Why was that given to us over 2,000 years ago? Why have we been hearing all these judgments? Why all the time in Ezekiel has God been saying over and over and over, a judgment's coming, and here's what I'm going to do, and here's what I'm going to do, and here's what I'm going to do? Why does He keep saying it, and then it doesn't seem to have happened yet? Well, don't think that He's slow in keeping His promises, as some of people keep count slowness. He's merciful. He's patient, and He's not wanting anyone to perish. Go to Ezekiel. Go back to Ezekiel. But look at chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. Look at verses 23 and then verse 32. God speaking, and he says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Look at verse 32. He answers his own question. For I have no pleasure... In the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. So one of the main reasons why we keep seeing these warnings, 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 is because God is hoping that some will respond appropriately and listen and repent and be spared the coming judgment that is going to come. Now let me just say something to you that you may not already understand. Probably some people in the room understand this, but some of you may not. God has already set the day of judgment. Unfortunately, we've had bad preaching taught to us over the years. And some of us in Baptist circles have been taught that as soon as that last person gets saved, and as soon as the gospel gets preached to the whole world, then the end will come. And it's kind of like it's waiting on us. Have you ever heard that kind of preaching? 
soon as we get the message to the whole world. Well, as you've heard me say before, that's not what Jesus was saying in Matthew 24 when he said the gospel will be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. He was referring to the angel in chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, that at the end of the tribulation period is going to hover in midair over the whole world and preach the eternal gospel to the whole world all at once, and then the return of Jesus Christ come. And at the same time, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. In this situation, as you're turning there to Acts 17, in this situation in Ezekiel, God had already set the day of when the judgment was going to come as He used Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to come and judge the Israelites. But the Bible also says that He's already set the final day, the day of judgment on the earth. Look at chapter 17 and we'll look at verses 29 through 31. Paul speaking to the Areopagus on Mars Hill and look at what he says. He says, being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because, look closely, He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Has the day of judgment of the whole world already been set? Yeah. It's not waiting on us. God's already set it. So if He's already set the day of judgment, and He's already had set the day that He was going to judge Israel through the Babylonians, why does He keep giving warning, 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 warning? Go to Isaiah 65. Maybe we can answer that question. Isaiah 65. Look at verses 2 through 7. To many, the continued warnings of God through the prophets are wearisome. But I want you tonight to begin to start seeing that each of these warnings that we read is a gift of God. I know myself, and I'm pretty sure some of you have felt the same way as I've been studying Ezekiel, or some of you have been studying along with me, or just even hearing me teach it and read it to you, you'll go, wow. Another one. Whoa, another warning. Whoa, another warning. Oh, that's a horrific judgment there. Boy, he describes something bad that's going to happen again. And we get wearied sometimes. Like, when's he going to just go ahead and do it? But I wanted to have the Spirit of God change your mind toward it tonight. Every warning, if the day's already been set, every warning is a gift. It's a gift. When you were in school and you were taking a test... The test isn't graded until you finally hand it in, right? So you're allowed, as you're in the process of taking the test, you're allowed to make some scribbles and change it, right? Hopefully. Have you ever had a professor or a teacher that would walk up and down the aisles and go, you might want to rethink number three? Have you ever had a teacher do that? I remember as a, as a student going, I love you. <laughs> because that meant you've got a chance to get it fixed. Every time they said, check it again, it was another opportunity to get it right. Each of these warnings of God, they sound horrific, and they will be when He executes those, them on those who don't respond appropriately. But every one of these warnings is a gift. It's a gift because of His love, because of His mercy. Look at chapter 65. I was going to start in verse 2, but let's just start in verse 1. 
I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in the secret places. By the way, that's people who sought the wisdom from the dead. By the way, is that going on today? Where people go and consult people, mediums, to talk to dead people to get insight in their lives? In the White House. <coughs> Look at verse 4 again. Who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. Who say, keep to yourselves, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. They are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Here at the end of this passage, God says, I'm going to bring the judgment on Israel because of their sin. But what did he say at the beginning? I have continually offered my hands to a disobedient people. You remember Stephen, when they were about to put him to death, he said this right before they stoned him. You stiff-necked individuals, how long will you resist the Holy Spirit? Your fathers resisted him, and you're resisting him too. And they stoned him. But at the end of verse uh, 7 here, I want to use that to launch into where we're going tonight in our study in chapter 7 of Ezekiel. He says at the end of it, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. If you don't mind marking your Bible, highlight that word measure. I'll measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. In other words, God's judgment isn't just going to be haphazard. It's going to be measured. But what's it going to be measured according to? To their deeds. The, the, when he judges the wicked on the earth, it will not just be haphazard. It will be according to their deeds. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 7 and look at what jumps off the page. I want you to see in chapter uh, 7, 3, uh, verses 8 and 9, and also at verse 27. Look at chapter 7, verse 3. He says, Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways. Look at verses 8 and 9. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you, and I will judge you according to your ways, and I'll punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways. All right, go look at verse 27. According to their way, I will do to them, and according to their judgments, I will judge them. I want you to understand this, that when God judges the wicked... When God pours out His wrath on mankind who have rejected His offer of salvation and forgiveness of sins through His Son, Jesus Christ, He's not just going to pour out His wrath. It will be a measured pouring out of His wrath according to each one, according to what they've done. And we're going to get to that in just a little bit. Um, but I want to just kind of, as we get into the specifics of that, remind you of something. There's a Bible term. Preachers use it a lot. They say God is omniscient. Does anybody know what that means? All-knowing. In other words, 
There isn't something he doesn't know. So if God is not only, as you were saying, omnipresent everywhere, but also omniscient, is there anything anybody's ever done that he doesn't know? Oh, and by the way, the Bible says he's keeping track. Go to Matthew chapter 12. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 12. Look at verse 36. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Don't miss that. On the day of judgment, when Jesus judges the world, he will judge them for every careless word they've said. And we keep thinking about all the bad stuff. No, he's keeping track of every sin. And we, we always want to say every little sin, but I stop myself. The Bible says that sin is sin. What did Adam and Eve do that got them kicked out of the presence of God? Okay, they disobeyed. But what specifically did they do? Yeah, they ate a piece of fruit that they were told not to eat. Some of you heard me say this in times past. Nowadays, we think, what's the big deal? People are doing that in the produce department all the time. <laughs> right? You know, a couple of grapes, no one ever know. What do I do with this banana peel before I hit the register? We think it's no big deal. But that got Adam and Eve removed from the presence of God. All he said was, eat anything you want here. Just don't eat of this one tree. And they ate of that tree. And the moment they took the first bite... They were now separated from God because of their sin. God's going to keep track of every idle word. Aren't you glad we're not going to be held accountable to that? Go to Ecclesiastes, though. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the very end of the book, verses 13 and 14. Solomon has been writing this whole book, dealing with all the different ways he's looked at life to try to find out the answer for life and the meaning of life. And he comes to a conclusion in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12. He says, the end of the matter has all been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God's keeping track of everything. God's keeping track of everything. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. By the way, as you're hearing all these verses, and your, if your reaction is, well, who can do that? <laughs> the law is doing its job. If you realize I can't do that, I can't be sinless, I can't live a perfect life, then the law has done its purpose. To show you your need of a Savior. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Paul talking to Christians, by the way, here now. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't, don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that those that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Look closely at what Peter's saying. He said, for those of us who are in Christ, who have, because of Jesus, had the body of sin put away, if you will, in a sense, it's been put to death, yet we still struggle with this sin nature. But actually what it is, is, is as Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. I'm in this horrible struggle. And we all understand that. But what Paul was saying that as he went on in that section of chapter 7, and for time we won't go there, he says, I got this problem. He said, in my inner being, because I'm saved, I want to obey God's law. But I got this other problem, and that my body's still under the curse. And my flesh is right there with me. And the things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. And then he says twice, therefore, it's no longer me who's even still doing it. It's sin living in me. That doesn't mean we're innocent of the consequences. But there's something different about those of us who are in Christ. You know from Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yet at the same time, Paul then, I'm sorry, Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In other words, Jesus was tempted, was he not? He never sinned. But is he tempted anymore? Why? Because he died and he rose from the dead and now sin has no power over him anymore. Temptation, not even a problem with Jesus anymore. He says, now that we're in Christ, you need to arm yourselves with that same mentality. Because Jesus suffered in his body because of sin and dealt with sin, I now have to Renew my mind on a daily basis and lay my body. Isn't that what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says? Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the... I like to add the word daily because in the Greek it's there. In the daily renewing of your mind. And we have to daily say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit because the same Jesus that said no to the flesh throughout his life now lives within us and will, as we yield to him, give us power over sin. Paul says, keep that in mind. And he said, look, by the way, when you don't live like the world does, they're going to think you're crazy. They're going to wonder why you don't join them. But then he adds this. He says, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Paul, I mean, sorry, I keep saying Paul. Peter hints at two, a distinction between two groups in this passage. Those who will be judged, the they, and those of you who live in the Spirit. And that's us that are saved in Jesus Christ. Now, I touched on Romans chapter 8. Let me go to Romans chapter 8 again. And I want you to read it because there's a couple things in Romans that I think are pretty helpful for us in this struggle. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Look at verses 1 through 4. It says, There's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I had fun this, this afternoon preaching to a minute, men in motion. And we looked at the fact that the angels who came to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 said two interesting things. They said, first, 
We have good news of great joy that will be for all the people. But then at the end of their statement, they said, and peace on earth to whom he is well pleased. Did you catch that? I got good news and great joy that are going to be for everybody. A Savior has been born in Bethlehem, and that's Christ the Lord. But then they said, on earth peace with whom he is well pleased. So we started to look at, well, how do you get in that group of being someone that he's well pleased with? And we came to the conclusion that there's only one person that he's well pleased with. If you look at the scriptures and look for with whom he's well pleased, you only find it two other places. One was in Matthew, sorry, not Matthew, Luke chapter 3, where Jesus is being baptized. And as he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes down and the the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then in chapter 17 of Matthew on the Mount of Transfiguration, as he's there with Moses and Elijah, the kind of glory of the Father enveloped them. And he spoke again and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Then he had these two words or three words, listen to him. And we looked at the fact that the Bible says that the only way we can have God consider us be someone that he's well pleased is if we are in the one in whom he's well pleased. He's well pleased with Jim Johnson for no other reason except the fact that I am in Jesus and he's well pleased with his son. It has nothing to do with my baptism, my prayer of the salvation, my good life. Nothing has nothing to do with that. What pleases my father is the fact that I'm in Jesus and he's well pleased with his son. There's no condemnation for those who are listening closely. He doesn't say baptized. He doesn't say pray to prayer. He doesn't say good church members. He doesn't say faithful to do good things. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the distinction. For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, all of a sudden, Paul, this was helping me. This was making me feel really good. There's no condemnation if I'm in Christ and, and I've been set free from the law of sin of death because I'm in Christ. But then you go and say, but for the, only for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And all of a sudden, we start looking at ourselves again and we start saying, well, I don't always walk according to the Spirit. Sometimes I walk according to the flesh. Well, that's why you can let the Bible build your theology. Go to chapter uh, 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Do you see it? And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, and you're in Christ, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Folks, I want you to hear something. God keeps track of every little thing and will judge the world in accordance with the measure of their sin. Don't worry. He's keeping track of everything they're doing. And if they don't respond to His offer of mercy and salvation through Jesus Christ, 
One day when he judges them, and I'm going to show you how the Bible even makes it even more clear than this. One day when he judges them, they will be judged for eternity according to how much they've sinned. The Bible's very clear about that. But aren't we grateful that we've been spared that judgment for those of us who are in Christ? Because I don't know about you. Because even I got saved, though I got saved in 1973 at eight years old. I know the sin that I've still struggled with in my life, even though I've been a Christian. I can't even fathom what it would be like not to have been saved and have Christ living in me and give me victory over sin over all these years. But I still struggle with sin. Thank God even that amount of sin isn't going to be judged because I'm in Christ. Man, that's a great, great thing, isn't it? Go to Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 9 through 24. What then? Paul says, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Stop saying about your child that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're a good boy. No, they're not. They're lost. The sooner you acknowledge the fact that your child who's not in Christ is lost, the sooner you'll be praying for them to become saved. God doesn't measure salvation or no salvation on a curve. The issue is whether or not they've received forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And if they're in Christ, there's no condemnation. But if they're not in Christ, I don't care how quote-unquote good you think your kid is. They're lost. There's none that's good, not even one. Jump over to verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law is just simply to show you that you're a sinner. You're not going to be declared righteous by God because you kept the law better than somebody next to you. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Does anybody know why, by the way? Well, that's right, because you can't keep it all. The law says that if you break one command, you're guilty as if you broke it all. James chapter 2, verse 10. The only way to be righteous in God's sight by observing the law is to keep it perfectly. Oh, by the way, you think you haven't sinned, Jesus said? The law says don't commit adultery, but I'm going to tell you what God's looking at. He's looking at the heart, and if you've lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery. Jesus didn't have to go any further. He probably hit everybody at the same time with that one right there. Look at verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Have you heard it yet? The reason why God is patient is in not wanting anyone to perish is He wants people to respond to the offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. But isn't that interesting that nowadays in the world we live in, the name Jesus is a swear word? Isn't that interesting? I was on a golf course with these guys, and whenever they'd hit a bad shot, they'd say, Jesus Christ, but they weren't praying. And I finally turned to them after a while and said, look, 
this isn't any kind of a judgment on you or anything. I'm just going to ask you a question. I said, why do you think that whether you believe Jesus is God or not, I believe he is, but some people don't believe that he's God, but everybody acknowledges that he was a man on this earth. And he was probably the greatest man who ever lived on the earth. If you don't believe he's God, that's up to you. But would you not agree that Jesus probably was one of the greatest men who ever lived on the earth? They said, yeah. I said, then why do we use his name when we want to swear and we're angry? Why don't we say Hitler? Why don't we say Mussolini? I said, you can even say Jim Johnson if you want to. It doesn't bother me. I'm not a great guy either. And they said, are you a preacher? Just a preacher. I said, but just think about it for a minute. They go, we've never even thought about it. I said, most people don't. But I said, there's a spiritual reason why Satan wants the world to use Jesus' name, the only name that can save you from your sin. Would want to use that name as a swear word. I think when they say Jesus Christ, they're saying, you know, I really flubbed up on this one. I screwed up, so I need some help. Well, you know what? Uh, I wish that were the case. But if that makes you feel better, Bill, go right ahead. <laughs> What's even worse, Jim, mm-hmm. is when they say God. Oh, yeah. And the words after that. Yep. That's like an ice pick to my heart. Yep. And, and but we got to understand. When they say that, mm-hmm. I always come back and say, praise God. Yep. And that's great. And you got to keep in mind, though, apart from Jesus, we'd be the same place. They're doing the best they can with no spirit of God within them. There's no one good. You, you want further proof? Go read in your Bibles in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful beyond cure. There's nothing that can fix it except a heart transplant. When God gives you his heart. Go real quickly to Exodus chapter 34. Actually, no, for the sake of time, write that down and go look at it later on. I really want to keep moving. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, when God comes before Moses and and, and displays a portion of his glory, because Moses couldn't handle all of it, he declares his name, full of mercy, steadfast love. But then he also says, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. All right, so we need to keep this in mind. As God has been warning, as God has been warning the nation of Israel, and we saw the last time we were together, he's going to do everything he said he would do. But he keeps saying, here, it's come now. We read it tonight. The end. It's time. It's judgment. When we would say, well, go ahead and do it. Actually, aren't you glad that he didn't go ahead and do it before you got saved? Aren't you glad that he waited, I'm grateful that he waited till at least 1973 when I was able to respond to his offer of grace. Go to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Let's take a little second here. We've already been looking at how he's going to judge the wicked and he keeps track of every little thing. Let's take a look at us. Psalm 32, look at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Thank God, right? Not for us. Not for us. Thank the Lord. For, the, for those who have received his salvation, every little thing. And we're going to get to that in a second. Go ahead, Zach. 
We're going to get to rewards in just a little bit. We're not going to dive into rewards tonight in too much detail, but we're going to touch on it. So hang on to that, that, that question. We know 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let me remind you, the best way that I love to look at that verse is this. Did Jesus commit any sin? Then how did He become sin if He never sinned? God imputed it to Him, correct? He put sin on Him. God took Him who had no sin and put sin on him, he became sin. He didn't want just carrying sin, he became sin. So that we might become the righteousness. In other words, are any of you here righteous in your own self? Then how come you look me in the eye and say you're righteous? Because in the same way, go ahead, Jeff. He got it from us. He took our sin and put it on Jesus. I have no righteousness, but he took Jesus' righteousness and he's put it on me. Folks, don't fall into how good you're doing today or how well you've been living the Christian life. The issue is whether you're in Christ or not in Christ. All right. Uh, real quickly, go to Job 33. You're in Psalm 32. Go to Job 33. Just back up a book. The gospel of salvation by grace through faith in the one who provides for man's sin is in the Old Testament all throughout. But let me show you one of my favorites. In Job 33, look at verses 22 and following. The, Job's been saying God doesn't speak. And uh, Elihu says, actually, you're wrong. God does speak in lots of ways. And one of the ways he speaks is by bringing men right to the point of death with sickness and whatever to get their attention. It says in verse 22, his soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, a one of a thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. And he sees his face with a shout of joy. And he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. It says, Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of life. Did you catch that? God says, I've got a ransom. And when that person believes in the ransom that God's provided for his sin, God says, I've covered, it's been covered. I won't be held against him. The man says, I, I sinned. I didn't do what was right, but it wasn't held against me. Isn't that an awesome? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. But as I said earlier, if you reject God's offer to have your sins covered and totally forgiven, you'll be severely judged for eternity according to or in measure with everything you have done. Let, let me take you to two Three passages as we wrap this section of the study up. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 26 through 31. I think this is one of the most clear yet scary warnings of the judgment to come. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 through 31. The Hebrew writer says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth... 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, if you reject the salvation that God has provided, the one and only way to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, remember, He's the way and the truth and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through Him. If you reject that one offer, there's no other sacrifice for your sin. That's the sinning going on deliberately that it's talking about, rejecting salvation. But fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, let me just take you a second here to show you something from context. This section of verses has been used by many to try and say you might could lose your salvation or watch out because God's going to get Christians too. That's not what this passage is saying. When he talks about trampled underfoot the Son of God and, 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 and insulted the spirit of, spirit of grace by which he was sanctified, remember, I've shared this with you before. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19 says that God was in Christ, that at the time that Jesus died on the cross, God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself. Things in heaven, things on the earth, and things under the earth. Hear this closely and very carefully. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the entire world at that moment. Don't hear me say that the world's forgiven and the world's going to heaven. No, you have to receive this gift now. It was paid for, it's being offered, but you have to receive it by faith to get it. But you have been sanctified. You have been just, he's just, he's, I'm sorry, he's paid the price for your sin. If you reject this offer of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness, you've outraged God. You think it's bad enough that people were judged according to breaking the law of Moses when they had one or two witnesses? How much worse is it going to be for those who have had God's own son presented to them on their behalf and have rejected that. That, by the way, is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the only sin not forgiven. Everything was already paid for on the cross. But when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, when he offers salvation to you, now you're held accountable for all of the sins. Now, people say, well, Jim, I think this applies to Christians, too. No, I can prove to you it doesn't apply to Christians just from the prior verses. Go back to chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. Listen to what the Hebrew writer says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, what? In full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. But for those who aren't in Christ, I don't want you to have full assurance, the Hebrew writer said. I want you to understand, if you keep on sinning and rejecting this offer, there's a judgment coming. And you don't want to be there when you have to stand before the judge of all the world who has kept track of every idle word and will measure into your lap according to everything you have done. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Look at verses 11 through 15. Here's the culmination of it all right here. This is at the end of the tribulation period, at the end of the millennial kingdom. 
when all the wicked dead are brought back to life and they stand before God on His great white throne. And verse 11 says, Our great white throne and Him who was seated on it, from His presence, earth and sky fled away. It's not fun time. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books, plural, were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according, so we see it again, don't we, to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Books were opened and also the book of life. And of course, the people that are at this judgment, their names aren't in the book of life or they wouldn't even be at this judgment. But what are those other books then? If, if the thing that determines whether we go to heaven or hell is the book of life and whether or not our name's in the Lamb's book of life, why has he got the other books? Because God's been keeping track of everything we've ever done. The good news is, for those of us who have received His forgiveness through Jesus Christ, those books are thrown away. They're gone. Those books are gone. Now, as Zach brought out, and I don't have time to go into it in too much detail, there is going to be a judgment for rewards for those of us who are in Christ. He's still measuring how we're doing, but it has nothing to do with whether or not we're forgiven or in Christ. The issue now will be how much reward we have for eternity. We won't take the time to go that there, but there is a judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. And we need to be living our lives in obedience to the Word of God and the Spirit of God within us. By the way, listen to me say something that some of you may understand, some of you might not. And if you don't understand, ask me afterwards. But you can sit here and you could try to live your life according to the Bible and not be rewarded. I'm going to say it again. You could spend your Christian life trying to live according to the Bible and doing whatever the Bible says, and you'll miss out on a reward. Because the reward is tied to the specific plan that God has for each of us according to how He's called and gifted us and the purposes He has for each of us. And you need to find out what it is that God has for you to do and you live your life according to the leadership of the Spirit that lines up with the Word of God, but in the way that God has for you and He'll reward you according to the work that He has for you. You remember in all the stories that Jesus told about the rewards that are coming, it was tied to what they were given to do. So keep that in mind. Now, Another thing we learn from chapter 7 of Ezekiel is that when the judgment of God comes, all the money in the world will do you no good. Let me hit this real quickly. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. I think it's pretty self-evident. But look at chapter 7, verses 19 through 22. <clears throat> Ezekiel 7, verses 19 through 22. They cast their silver into the streets, and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of wrath of the Lord. They can't satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it. For it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. His beautiful ornament they used for pride, and they made their abominable images and their detestable things of it. Therefore I will make it an unclean thing to them, and I will give it into the hands of the foreigners for prey, and to the wicked of the earth for spoil, and they shall profane it. I'll turn my face from them, and they shall profane my treasured place. That's the holy place of the temple. Robbers shall enter and profane it. You see what's going on here. At that time that God brings the judgment... Whatever money they had was worthless. Was it going to buy them any food? By the way, that was a question. Okay, how come we know that it wasn't going to buy them any food? What? There was no food. No, this is, remember the judgment at the time of Israel being judged and with Babylon and the siege on Jerusalem. Remember, we've already been through that start of the study here. 
when Ezekiel was prophesying, there's going to be a siege on Jerusalem. They're going to build siege works around it. Everybody in the city is going to starve. They're going to be eating their own children. There's going to be disease. It doesn't matter how much money you have. There's no food to buy. Pretty soon they just look at their, their money that they thought was so valuable. And the Bible even says they had even taken that silver and that gold and they had made their idols out of it. They actually started just throwing it in the streets saying it's of no use and no value. But write this down, look at it later on in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Luke 12, 13 through 21. Jesus tells a story about the man who had amassed all these riches. And he says, man, I'm going to build bigger barns and store it all up. And that night he died. What good was it? Actually, the things that God had blessed them with, the money, the possessions, became their idols, even literally, like I just touched on, because they used that to make idols, and God made it detestable to them. Look at verse 20 again. His beautiful ornament, ornament they used for pride, and they bade their abominable images and their detestable things of it. Therefore, I will make it an unclean thing to them. In other words, there's going to come a point where everything that they thought that they wanted Everything that they had lived their life for, when they realize it's worthlessness, it's going to actually become sick, sickening to them. Some of you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you probably have had that experience in your life, and you thank God for it now because He used it to bring you to Him. But the thing that you used to love, you used to live for, now makes you sick to even look at it. And that's what He said was going to happen to them in their judgment. Now, I want you to see something, though. I don't want you to be afraid of enjoying things. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, tells us that God has given us things to enjoy. I unfortunately grew up in the era where the church taught that you weren't to have any fun. If you ever went and had a blessing of God, you didn't tell anybody in the church because they never were happy for you, even though the Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice. You never told anybody when you got something good or a new car or anything like that. If you end up going on a vacation to, to Florida, I lived up in New Hampshire, and we say, hey, we're going to Florida on vacation. They say, must be nice. <laughs> First Timothy chapter 6, look at verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything, what? To enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works and generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's okay to enjoy things, folks. I'm not saying they should never enjoy things that God's blessed us with. He's given us these things to enjoy. If you get the chance to travel and see the world and see the country, enjoy it. It's create, But don't let it get out of balance. When it gets out of balance... That's when it becomes a problem. And by the way, that's not for me to determine or you to determine when it's out of balance. The Holy Spirit of God within you will show you when it's gotten out of balance. When God's gifts got out of place or out of balance over time, God's gifts no longer became pleasurable. Go to chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. Remember I told you uh, Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes wrote about his endeavors to find the meaning of life. And he tried all sorts of stuff to find out if that would make him happy and satisfied. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 11. He said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Uh, it means a blowing of the wind, a waste of time. 
I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart to how to use, how to, how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in, all kind, in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house and had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both of men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. In other words, I was listening and listening to the Spirit as I examined all this stuff is what he meant. And whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. Behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He said, I set out to just enjoy life, build stuff, amass, party. But I kept my wisdom with me that God had given me. And as I examined everything, I realized this isn't the answer. There's nothing wrong with enjoying things that God's given. Remember, he's given us everything to enjoy. But don't let it get out of balance. Don't let it get out of balance. I enjoy golf. I love golf. It's relaxing for me. It's a great way for me to meet people and share the gospel, also develop relationships with Christians. But it could get out of balance. Every one of us have things that we enjoy. Make sure they don't get out of balance. And again, let the Lord show you what that means. Proverbs 21, verse 17. I know what time it is, and we're about to wrap up here. Proverbs 21, verse 17. It says, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Go to Isaiah chapter 5 real quick. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 8 through 13. Proverbs 21, 17 is where we just were. We're in Isaiah 5, 8 through 13. What are those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room? And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a omer of seed shall yield one, but one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. Therefore my people will go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Here again, the warning of the prophet to the nation of Israel back at that time. They were living for pleasure. And everything God had given them to enjoy had gotten out of balance and they had forgotten God, and all that stuff that they accumulated, where did it go? It went to the Babylonians. It went to the nation that was God using to come and bring them judgment and take them into captivity. And ironically, God had built that temple so that He might dwell with them, correct? Isn't that why He had them build the temple? In their midst, so He might be there with them. And what did they do? 
His desire was that he wanted to be the one they turned to and worship and acknowledge their creator and their Lord. And what they did, unfortunately, was worship the Baals and worship these false gods, and they ignored him. And so what he did was, as we saw in Ezekiel 7, he said, I'll tell you what, you want to go to them? I'm going to even give the place that I made so that I would be with you over to them. They're going to take you captive. I'm going to judge you for your sin. And most of you are going to be killed because of it. And the place that I made for me to be with you, they're just going to come in and just desecrate it. You really want to go with them? All right, I'm going to let them be in charge. We'll see how much you like it. By the way, they followed after the gods of the Babylonians and the Assyrians and all that. They thought it was going to do them good. How'd they end up? Slaves. Listen closely to me, folks. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Oh, pleasure, sin looks like it's pleasurable at the time. I read a quote, quote this week that I want to share with you. Whenever we're tempted with sin, we're tempted by what we might be able to gain. Before you give in to that sin, think about what you're going to lose if you say yes. Don't look at what you may gain if you say yes. Look at what you may lose if you say yes. Father, I thank you again for this chance to come and just open up your word. And I just feel like you want us to just stop here, not only for the sake of time, but because of what it is that you've shown us. And all through this passage, we saw again and again tonight. And then they'll know that I'm the Lord. But unfortunately, Lord, in each of these passages where it says, and then they'll know that I'm the Lord, it's after the judgment has come. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That we have seen that you're the Lord prior to the judgment. You've opened our eyes to this truth of this salvation that's only through faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, now, may we learn what it means to live under the power of your Spirit that lives within us as we wrestle in the same way Paul did with this flesh that's still under the curse of sin. Yet that same power that gave you, Jesus, victory over sin as you walked on this earth lives within us. And as we yield to you on a daily basis, you will, you can, and you will give us victory. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you have saved us from the penalty of our sin May we believe just as much that you will give us victory over the power of sin in the daily life. And Lord, in those times when we unfortunately yield to the flesh and not the spirit, remind us that we are not in the flesh, but we're in the spirit if Christ lives within us. And we thank you for the fact that we're in you and there's no condemnation for us. We thank you for your mercy. And Lord, as we hear the warnings and the judgment that are to come May we understand that not only at that time, but also in our day as well, the day has already been set. And that every time you warn of the coming judgment, it's a gift. Use us to spread that gift in love through Jesus Christ in the days that you've given us on this earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.